hello. On today's episode of Case Confirmed, I spoke with Inder Singh, founder and CEO of Kinza, a smart thermometer and software that can detect in the moment where illness is spreading. Prior to starting Kinza, Inder Singh was the executive vice president of the Clinton Health Access Initiative. While there, Inder brokered deals between 70 governments and 22 pharmaceutical companies that resulted in nearly $1.5 billion in cost savings from lower-priced drugs and diagnostics for HIV-AIDS, malaria, and TB. Inder grew increasingly frustrated by constantly following outbreaks, never knowing where illness was spreading until it was too late. That's when he thought of the idea of Kinza, which started in 2015 as a mission-based company to stop the spread of flu and other illnesses by detecting where fevers were popping up in real time. Now the company is seeing its mission come to life, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Ender. Thank you so much for joining me today on Case Confirmed. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing well. Great, great. Glad to hear. Yes, we were very excited to have you on and think our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. So to start us off, uh, what was your motivation behind founding Kinza? So prior to working at uh, Kinsa, prior to starting Kinsa, I had the great pleasure and honor of working on a number of large-scale infectious disease programs uh, overseas, mostly um, related to AIDS, TB, and malaria. Uh, I worked at the Clinton Health Access Initiative, uh, better known as CHI, and um, was one of the people that brokered the agreements that improved access to medicines. We dropped the price of drugs for AIDS. TB and malaria, along with some other things. And it was really, it was, it was a a wonderful dream job. Um, I ran around the world negotiating and brokering deals on behalf of 70 developing countries with the owners or CEOs or executives at pharmaceutical companies. Um, Over the course of five years, we did some really good work. We, uh, we, the the price of HIV drugs came down more than 90%. Uh, I helped to start our malaria drug access program. Uh, did our first uh, deal on TB, and it was it was just a dream job. It, it was great. Uh, all told, the improved access to medicines resulted in about a billion dollars in cost savings, and we introduced a whole bunch of new drug formulations for rare pediatric conditions too. And as part of that, I was involved in running uh, the the Unitaid program, and that included the largest pediatric HIV program in the world at the time. It had six hundred thousand children, and I loved it. But I got really frustrated towards my end of my career in public health because I saw the way that the world really worked when it comes to curbing or stopping the spread of infectious illness. And the sad fact is we do it with very little, I'd say zero information about where and when disease is starting. So I'll pose the question I posed when I uh, first launched Kinsa, gosh, nine years ago now, how do you stop an outbreak before it becomes an epidemic or God forbid, a pandemic, if you don't know where and when it's starting. And I think all of us, everybody's listening um, has lived through COVID-19. And I think we all know that you don't, the answer is you don't, you don't stop it. So we just need a little bit better data on where and when disease is starting, infectious disease is starting and spreading so that we can forecast it and we can get ahead of it. And that's what Kinsa's purpose is. Our, our mission is to curb the spread of infectious illness through earlier detection and earlier response. And we thought, gosh, there's got to be a better way to get this data. There's got to be easy ways to get really granular data from people in their homes before they enter the healthcare system. As we all know, 
you know, you don't really go and see the doctor, get a lab test until your symptoms are severe. So how do you talk to people at those early phases of disease development when they're mildly symptomatic? And how do you collect rich data that'll allow you to detect and forecast um, an, an, an atypical outbreak or even a common outbreak, a flu outbreak? And that's what we set out to do. And that's fantastic. And I can imagine, you know, this past year especially has been, um, yeah, a a huge opportunity to um, to put this motivation, you know, into practice, into the test, um, which leads me to my next question. Can you lead us through, you know, how data from Kinza Smart Thermometers is being used for public health, you know, especially within this context of the COVID-19 pandemic and also concurrently with influenza, um, with the spread of influenza? Yeah, absolutely. So just to your earlier point, this this past year has been real a real test for everyone. It's been a test for us in a particular way of whether our systems really work. And they did, which is pretty awesome. Like I, I, if I'm being honest about it, I'm sad that it took a pandemic to bring to light how important work on early detection of spreading infectious illness is. Um, but I'm really happy that we survived in the nine years to get here to try and help. And, and we've proven a lot in the last couple of years. So you might be asking yourself, like, how is it possible that a network of smart thermometers can improve detection and forecasting of infectious disease, right? Why can't we do it already with existing healthcare data? Why can't we do it with social media data? Maybe that's, you know, we've shown that in the past Google and Twitter data has been, have been very helpful in terms of identifying trends in infectious illness. Why can't we do it today? So when we first set out, we, we looked at all these other data sets. And even when you take them together, they're just, they just don't get the kind of predictive power and signal that you need. And this is not really rocket science. What we set out to do was to get real-time, highly granular geographic data, like geolocated data, on where and when symptoms were starting, how fast they were spreading, and how severe the symptoms were getting. What was the symptom progression, right? So said in other ways, you know, if you, again, none of this is rocket science. If you want to know where and when disease is starting, you got to know where symptoms are starting. If you want to know how fast it's going to spread through the community, you've got to know how fast it's spreading in the primary nodes of disease transmission, the household, the school, the workplace. And if you want to know if it's atypical or not, you've got to see if it's, if it's either spreading faster, it's incidence, it's spatial temporal incidence patterns are unusual. And whether it's really going to impact people, you need to know the progression of those symptoms, how bad it's going to get for the individual. Again, none of this is rocket science in terms of getting, in terms of the kinds of data that would help us improve. So to get those data sets, we asked ourselves the question, how do we talk to households? Households being a primary node where disease is transmitted. How do we talk to households early in their symptom journey when someone first falls sick? How do we talk to them in the beginning of it? And how do we keep that conversation going? And when we looked at ways to do that, we said, okay, there's all these software apps out there, but they're not really changing behavior. You just don't go to a software app when you first fall sick. What do you do in the home? You go to a thermometer. Like, that's really the only thing that exists in the home to give an objective sense of whether you're ill. So we said, okay, that's a behavior. Let's piggyback off that behavior. Let's reimagine the thermometer. Let's reinvent it. And what we invented was the smart thermometer. So this smart thermometer, don't really think of it as a piece of hardware. Really think of it as software. Um, the, the thermometer itself connects into an app, and it allows us to provide to have a two-way communication with that household. 
We can coach them through the illness. We can ask them about severe symptoms. We can get deeper information about whether they've had a vaccine. Um, as an example of this, in April, um, just this past April, we saw that fever levels were on the rise. And we thought, hmm, that's interesting. Let's figure out how much of those fevers are associated with the vaccine. And what we found was that 20% of our signal, of our febrile signal, was from people who had gotten the vaccine within the last three days. Isn't that fascinating? To, to me, that was totally fascinating. And um, so this is the kind of power that a two-way communication system with a household when they first fall ill has, right? You can get those data sets. So now let's answer your question. At the beginning of March, um, we saw a U-turn. We were expecting fever levels to drop. We are expecting transmission levels to drop. And they all of a sudden started rising. And they started rising hard and fast. And they started rising hard and fast in many parts of the country, throughout the Northeast and Florida and Michigan and Texas and California and King County and Santa Clara County. And at that particular point in time, it was probably the second week or just after the, just after the first week of uh, March, there had just been first cases confirmed in Santa Clara and King County. So we're looking at our data and saying, wow, this is a black swan event. What we're seeing is an atypical outbreak. This is not what we'd expect from normal cold and flu. It's unusual in that transmission levels were very elevated. The spatial, spatial temporal incidence patterns were way off and it wasn't matching our forecasts. And so that to us was the first sign that COVID-19 was in the country. When scientists downloaded our data, um, and the New York Times ran a great article on this, they downloaded our data from healthweather.us and they plotted it. They plotted our atypical illness signal versus the COVID-19 death curve. And we also plotted it for cases and we also plotted it for hospitalizations. And what we found was that it was a three-week leading indicator of case surges. Um, we found that we were able to identify that community spread of illness was elevated to a great degree, often seven to 14 days before the first confirmed COVID cases had hit the, um, hit the local public health department's um, radar. So this is what happened at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, and it was really insightful. And throughout the pandemic, we've proven that this early warning system can, can be powerful in other ways. So here are some other examples of uses. When a city started doing social distancing policy, like New York City implemented its stay-at-home order, Florida implement, implemented its restaurant closure. Within days, we would see that the transmission dynamics would change. They would start leveling off and start falling. As far as we knew, that was the fastest feedback cycle on data that existed to show the degree to which the policy intervention was working. It was a real-time monitoring tool. Another use case. In November, on November 1 of each year, and this has been true for the last couple of years, um, we actually had, had a huge scientific breakthrough right before the pandemic hit, showing that we could take our data and do really precise um, forecasts. So on a city-by-city -city basis, we were able to show that on November 1 of the year, we could predict accurately influenza-like illness, ILI, the incidence of that for the rest of the season. So from November 1 through May, we could predict the curve very, very accurately. In, in Atlanta, for example, we predicted it, um, we predicted the double bump in 2018-2019. Atlanta often has a double bump. Um, and so, you know, we use machine learning techniques to create these transmission templates for local areas, typically at the county level, and we use those transmission templates to drive a SIR model. And when you do that, 
lo and behold, on November 1, after you see the beginning of the season, you can predict the rest of the season very, very accurately. So there's a, there's a publication that we are pushing through peer review um, very soon that will hopefully come out and, and talk about that. So that's a different use case, right? That's seasonal prediction. And we were really excited that our basic thesis years ago, that you could get data that's really granular from many people across the country and use it to detect and predict outbreaks, both unusual new emerging bio threats and existing endemic illness like flu really accurately um, was kind of largely proven over the past two years in a big way. Is that helpful? Is that interesting? (laughs) Yes, no, absolutely. And it's just so amazing to think that all of these, you know, large scale population level, you know, learnings and and modeling can can come just from, you know, a thermometer. I was struck when you said, you know, that it's just kind of the every, you know, everyone's house has a thermometer for the most part. Um, and it's it it really is the first thing you go to when you're sick or you think you're getting sick as kind of this, you know, objective tool to know what's going on a bit in your body. And I, I have a lot of young nieces and nephews that I babysit often. So I can definitely confirm that it is, yeah, it's one of the most huge items in the house, especially amongst households with young kids and, and you know, during flu season. So just incredible how using such a simple household tool can, can give us so much. We sometimes get written off as just a thermometer company, but that's the elegance of this, right? It's simple. It's an accessible tool. But let's complicate it for just one second. I think you made some really great points about families, right? Let's, let's complicate the science here a bit, right? Through this network of thermometers with these like, and remember the product's much more software than it is hardware. Think of it as kind of a medical guidance or illness support tool that asks you questions about your illness and tells you when you can go to the doctor, tells you when you should go to the doctor, when you should go to the ER, when home care is okay, and just tracks with you over, over time. But think if you think about what underpins that, there's three or four key things that really underpin that that allow us to get ahead of outbreaks. One, the network is able to talk to mildly symptomatic people who are still in the home. The healthcare system largely misses talking to mildly symptomatic people. You just, you know, you don't go to the doctor or get a test until you're more sick. Second, you know, we're able to see that transmission pattern at the node of disease transmission. And as far as I know, we're the only people to ever see real-time household transmission patterns. Said another way, the the secondary attack rate in the household. And we see it for more than 2 million households across the country. So we see it in real time. We see how fast it's spreading in the household. And this helps us predict how fast it's going to spread in the community. And three, you made a point about families. And I think this is really important, right? Network theory suggests that the more people a household interacts with, the more likely they are to get and spread contagious illness. It makes sense. You have more physical contacts. So if you really want to do, build an early detection network, which are the households you want in your network? Well, you want households that are larger in terms of size of people, right? Number of people. Because the more people, the more physical contacts that household has. You want those households in particular that are multifamily households or multi-generational households. And you want those households who have grocery store workers, retail workers, or other frontline workers who interact in physical proximity with hundreds of strangers a day. Those are the households you want. Guess what? Those households are frequently, not always, but frequently 
underinsured, underserved, and diverse. By definition, because they're underinsured or un- uninsured, the healthcare system misses a good group of those, a, good, a big group of those. You know, there's, there's this great work being done by wearable companies right now that are starting to look at signals of illness spread. But, you know, wearables for a family of four is upwards of $800 for the family. You know, if you want to buy a thermometer, you get it for free through our Title One school program for underserved communities, or you, or you know, you buy it for twenty five bucks for the entire family of four. Right? It's accessible. It's a, and eighty percent of our users associate their symptoms with an individual illness profile. That's how we see how fast it's spreading through the, the household. So th- this is the this is the opportunity here. You want to be in those communities, those underserved communities that are going to be sentinel households. They're going to be more likely to get and spread sickness. And the way we achieve that is by giving away our product for free through a Title I program. Title I schools are, are, are more underserved communities, and we've been doing this for six years, and we've given away 800,000 of them that way. And, and again, that's why this network works is because at every step of the way, we're trying to figure out how do we make it an even better earlier warning signal. Thank you so much. That is the fact that Kinza is really paying attention to the, you know, to the issue of equity here. And um, especially when it comes to infectious disease of, you know, we've seen, we've seen in the COVID-19 pandemic um, and also other pandemics. Um, my, my background is in HIV prevention. So that's the first place my mind goes as well. It's it's so incredibly important, especially the, the piece about access. Because yeah, I, I mean, I've seen some ads and things for those wearables and just the prices is prohibitive for many families. The I'm curious, the piece about that you mentioned about the partnerships with schools with just, you know, the wealth of data that um, Kinza is collecting through, you know, the app and the, and the thermometers, you know, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how this data is being integrated with either state health departments or, you know, other community partners for infectious disease uh, surveillance, if there's any other partnerships in the works? Yeah, we're really excited that we announced a long-term partnership with New York City's Department of Health. Um, we're also working with their schools and um, and you know providing some input to the mayor's office as well. And but it's really a str- it's really a strong partnership with the Department of Health. So they're going to be they're already using some of our data from our existing network in New York City to try and get ahead of outbreaks. In the fall, we'll continue to distribute more thermometers. We're going to distribute. We're going to engage with an additional hundred thousand households on top of the roughly. 40,000 or so that we have engaged engagement with today. So we'll be increasing the the granularity of outbreak detection in the city. And those 100,000 households will be given away through through the schools, uh, mostly to underserved uh, families. And um, so the, the individuals benefit from the product. The individuals also benefit from an understanding in simple terms of what's going around, what's going around their child's school and grade, right? Is the level of illness high or low? The school benefits, the school leaders, the school nurse benefit from that local understanding of illness spread so that they can say, ah, you know what? We're seeing a rise in illness amongst households associated with the school. We need to take action here. We need to take action there, increase disinfecting. So it, it provides a local empowerment. And the Department of Health gets these signals and alerts about where and when outbreaks are occurring in the city. 
And we'll be able to do it down to essentially the 42 neighborhoods that are defined there. Like in, if, if you're from New York City, like Chelsea, the Chelsea area versus the Upper West Side. So we're starting to think about those things as well as providing all the forecasts um, you know, on illness spread. So we're really thrilled about New York City. We work with a number of other uh, states and cities, but this is the first city where first large city where we have a long-term agreement where we're where our data is going to kind of be embedded into the work that the Department of Health does. It also happens to be, as far as I know, the largest um, public health uh, system in the country. I think there's 6,000 people in the New York City Department of Public Health. So we're really, really thrilled to be partnering with them. You know, and, and during the pandemic, we were trying to do this with everyone. We, it was really important to us to make our data as available as possible during the pandemic. It was the right thing to do. Uh, it was an opportunity for us to help. And it was an opportunity for us to prove things too, that so that the next time everyone's a little bit better prepared. And um, and so that's what we started doing. So we're, we're now trying to work through long-term agreements with other departments of public health. Um, this is really important to us and as an organization to support public health colleagues. Now, with that said, I will say our technology, like what we provide is highly sensitive early data. But it's not as specific. We can do syndromic differentiation. So like we can say, is it more COVID-like versus flu-like versus gastrointestinal versus, you know, et cetera. We can also do things like poverty and age now. So there is more specificity than you could imagine from a system like this. But it's still not, do you have flu A? Do you have flu B? Do you have RSV? It doesn't get to that level. It's not a diagnostic. So we're taking, now what we're doing is we're taking highly sensitive early data and we're starting to ingest diagnostic positivity and negativity, uh, positivity rates from other data sets and combining the two. So think of it conceptually as highly sensitive early data with delayed but highly specific data to answer different kinds of questions, to answer different kinds of questions. And, and, and that's what we're really excited about is, is about blowing out the kind of use of this early warning system for other purposes. I'll, I'll add one more thing that's really exciting from, from my perspective. You know, we are starting to talk with partners, public health departments, as well as genomic sequencing co- companies. There's been a wealth, there's been a flood of funding for genomic sequencing, right? We're trying to figure out the COVID variants. We're trying to do more general outbreak detection for new emerging bio threats. But the problem is if you just do genomic sequencing, te- sequencing everywhere all the time, wow, that's really expensive. That's kind of a waste of money, right? Wouldn't it be cool if you had a front end, if you had an early warning system that said, hey, there is an odd spatial temporal incidence pattern here. There is an elevated transmission pattern here. It does not look like traditional cold or flu or even standard COVID. It looks unusual. Send the test kits in, send the virologists in. You can imagine that that might be a better place to do genomic sequencing. And one of the advantages of a system like this is, well, heck, we can ask people in that local area through this two-way communication system. We can say, hey, there's an unusual outbreak in your area. Can we send you a nasal swab? Oh, great. You're willing to accept it? Cool. So they do the swab and we get an immediate effective genomic sequencing supply chain where we're using money really well. We're, we're targeting genomic sequencing to those places that have a higher probability of having an atypical outbreak. So that kind of thing becomes really sexy um, to me from a public health perspective. What do you think? Exactly. And in even just thinking of from an efficiency standpoint, so that's such a smart way to do surveillance, such an efficient way. And I mean, I, I've been saying this for a few months now. The the pandemic was undoubtedly incredibly devastating, not just in the US, but but globally. But 
you know, when it comes to whether it's infectious disease surveillance or, you know, even other sectors of life beyond public health, just seeing what what we can do as we kind of are all collectively trying to reinvent this post-COVID world. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned you mentioned not too long ago how so how this software can the highly specific information that it can generate, such as a person's age, you know, their general symptoms and their zip code. I'm curious about, you know, what are the privacy concerns associated with this type of, you know, real-time health informatics and how can this data be, be protected? Absolutely. This is a really, really important question. It's, it's one that we have to take seriously, right? Um, we, it's not that we just want to take seriously. We have to take it seriously because we've got this network of millions of households and, and it's really important that we retain their trust. So two or three thoughts. One is we believe that the user's data is the user's data. They own it. They can delete it. They can share it. We can't, right? So what we do is we have a separate user database with all their, all their data is encrypted, et cetera. And then we aggregate that data stream for our data scientists to use. So this is not their data. This is, this is kind of de-identified, aggregated, anonymized data. And then what we churn out from that is signals. So the signals that we churn out on healthweather.us are the signals that we provide to government. You know, this is, this is the percentage of people sick in an area. It's an inference, it's a calculation. This is not even, this is not personal data. This is not de-identified data. This is not metadata about the person. This is an inference. It's a geographic inference, a calculation. And so, you know, we take care to make sure it's not possible to identify an individual with that kind of level of data. And obviously you need to be careful of the granularity of it. But, you know, again, we're also just, these are also general symptoms that we're taking into consideration, not a particular diagnosis that is uncommon, for example, right? Um, It's not an HIV diagnosis. It's not a, you know, rare disease. And so that allows us to do these geographic calculations in a way that fully protects privacy. I believe that the right privacy stance that companies should take is as follows. Try to get as close to perfect personal privacy protection as possible. But at the same time, I think it should be something we all demand that companies make available the aggregated, anonymized data to advance society. So I'll make a more provocative statement. Apple only got it half right. I have great admiration for Apple and the privacy stances. But what they're not making available is that inference level information from all their biometric devices, stuff that could help us, could help public health, could help others get ahead of outbreaks and do all sorts of other things in healthcare. I believe that's the right stance. It's the right, it's the stance that we try to take and that we're advancing. It's to do both. Up until three years ago, you couldn't even give me your email address because I didn't want it. <laughs> and then my users protested. They literally, we had so many emails come through being like, I switched my phone. I downloaded the app again. What happened to my history? And we would say something like, sorry, we don't know who you are. We can't give you history. We, we, we don't track your history. And they protested. Um, there another, the other protest was mom and dad wanted to be able to share on their phones, their kids' illness history. We didn't have an account-based solution, right? There was no accounts. So we kind of relented and allowed users to give us a little bit more personal information and held it in the separate database. But that's the approach that we took. You can have 
personal privacy protection, and access, democratized access to information that helps you with the what's going around question, right? That's what we're answering at our core. We're answering what's going around that helps your community and that helps your health system respond to outbreaks. It's possible. And we have the technology and architecture to do it. And we should be taking this approach in many areas, not just outbreak detection. Absolutely. I think as a society, we're all becoming more aware of, you know, how our our privacy, how our data is being used, especially because so many of us keep track of a you know a good chunk of our lives on our devices. So I'm I'm really happy to to know that Kinza is taking this approach and taking that consideration as seriously as you are. Thank you. All right, so our conversation is coming to an end, but I wanted to leave our listeners with this last question of you know what do you hope for the future of Kinza and, you know, all of these issues that you have talked about, what is the, what is the next direction that you want us going in? We want to scale this up. We want to take it overseas. I mean, our vision has always been a global early warning system. That's our intent. We need the help of our public health colleagues. I still meet with public health colleagues who are, you know, rightfully skeptical, but, um, I'm still fighting a little bit of a a wall, which is this is a very new way of using data. It's a very new kind of technology. It's it's one that, you know, has not been widely adopted by public health yet. And I need your help. (laughs) You know, I have yet to convince a state epidemiologist to sort of take us seriously, despite all the publications, despite all the scientific publications, meta-archive papers, news coverage. I, and I'm trying to figure out who I can partner with there to give them as much data as they want so they can interrogate it and tear it apart and investigate it. But we're still struggling in, in many circles to sort of get that kind of engagement. We have a growing group of public health advocates, but the state epidemiologists are still holdouts. <laughs> and I think they're critical to getting their support is critical to really adoption um, because they're the kind of, you know, top of the top of the epi community in terms of, you know, their their influence over public health. So we've got this wonderful group of public health thought leaders kind of backing us up, but there's still kind of a wall in front of us. And and I would be open-armed, welcomed, would be delighted to chat with more and more of those state epidemiologists or folks that work with the state epidemiologists to give you all the science behind this and let you tear it apart. Cause I think there's something really valuable here and I want us to be prepared for the next, the next emerging bio threat, the next possible pandemic. Absolutely. And, and you can, you know, consider us here at case confirmed and um, hopefully now our listeners in absolute support of that, you know, if there's anything we've learned from this last year is, you know, prevention, 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 which is, you know, one of the core tenants of, of the entire field of public health. So Thank you again for such a fantastic conversation and, you know, sharing all the important work Kinza is doing through really an unprecedented time in all our lives. Thank you so much for the time. It was fun.